Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined here today by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Cott, the Hall of Famer. This is Cott's Corner, episode 322 in our network. And before we bring Jim on the show, we've got a big list of things to cover today. Just want to say thank you to our audience. We've eclipsed 53,000 subscribers now, 74 countries represented. We're now part of iHeartRadio's podcast network, and we are about to hit our new marketing uh, marketing time frame in November. So November 1, we'll start our new marketing time frame. It will reward our podcast host. Plus, we've got a special program for our listeners, too. So we'll announce that as we get into next week. But uh, with that, uh, Jim, welcome back to your show. Well, thanks, Dave. What was that intro music? I like that. I, I, I was... Get you pumped up, right? It's uh, so... I, I woke up in a, you know, basketball season starting too. baseball's winding down and I do some work in, in basketball. And I did my first report this morning and, uh, happened to click that music on while I was working out. It reminds me of, it's a video, it's from a video that Larry Bird was in. Uh, it's, it's by the outfield called winning it all. And I always get pumped up when I do my workout, listening to that one. Cause it's, uh, I get the- it sounded a little like sting. No, no, it was, uh, it's called a group called the outfield. The outfield. How about that? Good. Good. Winning it all it's called. So. Um, but they got, I got Larry Bird on the brain today, even though he's long retired. It's, uh, it's my favorite player growing up. Not a bad guy to have on your brain when you look at basketball highlights. No. Well, when I grew up, it was there was two teams on TV pretty much every week, the Lakers and the Celtics. And I grew up in New York. And you either like the Lakers or the Celtics. And I, I loved Larry Bird. And, and even though Pat Riley's from Schenectady, where, where I'm from, I, I rooted for Larry Bird all the way through. So yeah, was, I stayed on the same team for the most part in the NBA. Good. Yeah. So we got uh, I know we've got a lot of things going on in MLB and you did a nice trip to to uh, visit your alma mater, your college. But uh, let's, let's start with the Gold Glove Award, 16 Gold Gloves, uh, you know, won by you over your career, known as a, a phenomenal fielding pitcher, in part because of your delivery and in part because you worked on it. You talk about that on the show. But uh, talk to the, the Golden Glove right now. You know, I know there's few few guys nominated per position, per league. Quite frankly, I don't understand how they're picked um, right now, and I was hoping you could shed some light on to not just how they're picked, but also you know your experience as a Gold Glove winner. Yeah, first uh, you know today I don't I don't know how they're picked. When I look at the names, it is so uh, puzzling to me, uh, and I know coaches and managers might vote on it. I mean, I don't know how Nolan Arenado went downhill. I mean, did he suddenly not play as well this year or something? But not even. Nominee list. Yeah, what really jumped out at me was because uh, I look at the pitchers, and uh, the pitchers in the National League. Two of them are from the Phillies. Uh, is it? Do you pronounce it Taiwan? Taiwan Walker. Taiwan Walker. Yep. Yeah, and Zach Wheeler. Well, I asked Mike Schmidt, who covers the Phillies, uh, and he said all their starters are good fielders, but I was amazed that Ranger Suarez was not at the top of the list. I mean, nobody can field that position in the games I've seen any better than Ranger Suarez, but he does not have the innings pitched that the other guys have. And I can relate to that because I think being a perennial, you know, 250 inning, whatever pitcher for a long period of time, uh, that helped me get it year after year. I- I'm pretty sure with the new, a grading system that I would never have won 16 consecutive gold gloves. I don't know if Brooks Robinson would have or Greg Maddox would have, because it's so different. Uh, and, and it's just interesting what goes into that, that suddenly you see guys pop up. So I, you know, I always go to the eye test and I go to the, the test of guys that see him play and no disrespect to the ones that are, are getting nominated. I'm sure there must be some value there. They wouldn't get nominated. But it is uh, pretty hard to figure out how uh, some guys are missing. Uh, I think Mookie Betts did win it as part of a utility player or something. But, uh, you know, years ago, it was it was before all, uh, you know, Sabre had a little input into, you know, how much ground you cover. And, and I just think so many of those statistics are so – deceiving so i don't i don't know if these choices come out as real accurate or not yeah now who who nominated and who voted for that back when you when you won your 16 gold gloves well it was it was the players and the coaches yeah. uh, and there wasn't any scientific data put into it 
Uh, and I think the and and granted, if you don't have the innings, I remember the Tigers had a a relief pitcher named Terry Fox, and he might come in and pitch a couple innings, and he was really a great fielder. But you know, guys like that, from the pitching standpoint, they don't get enough exposure for the voters to see them. So those of us that logged all those innings, we have a big advantage. Yeah, and I would have to imagine with today's analytics world that things like defensive runs saved and and those those I, thoughts are put in there. I know uh, Tanner and I looked at the list last night, and again, as you said, no nothing against the guys that were nominated. We're trying to figure it out. So any audience members that have a a handle on that, please DM us, text us, let us know, because we're kind of curious. But, you know, a young kid like Anthony Volpe with the Yankees had a nice first year, uh, got his feet wet in the majors, but at times struggled at shortstop, making those tough plays. And I was surprised he was on the list. Not not a knock against him. I'm, I'm happy he is, and there's got to be some merit to the nomination. But uh, yeah, there were, there were some there's some very good shortstops in that American League that I was, you know, thinking like, wow, how, how, does, how, did, how did he distinguish himself from the others? Right. And, and yeah, I don't know how serious the the coaches are. You know, you sit around the coaches room and they just played this team and oh, that guy made some great plays. Now, does that influence the vote? There, there's so much of that stuff nowadays, especially when we're we're doing it by uh, analytics or excuse me for using that word statistics that, uh, you know, that I think it, it can really get skewed. The uh, segueing just quickly into statistics. I mean, I almost I have to stop watching the game because uh, be, the games because of the overuse of meaningless graphics. And I have to be sensitive to the fact that when I was in the business, uh, I knew the people that did the graphics. They go out of their way to create different statistical, you know, uh, graphics. And yet uh, I don't care if this guy went seven for, for 14 in the last series and he's 0 for 3 in this one. What does that tell me? That that has nothing to do with today's game. One of the reasons he went 7-14 is he probably wasn't as facing as good a pitchers as he is now. So there again is that eye test and human and human element. And I mean, we just hammered with the, the graphics in your television screen. I mean, I, I put myself in a producer director's chair from having been in the business a long time and and learned for some of the great ones like Freddie Gadelli, who is now the the lead guy on NBC Sports and has been for years. And going back to the late Harry Coyle, the direct famous director with NBC and Dick Enberg and Gene Kirby, guys that people today never heard of, of course. But I thought if I was a producer director, I I would want to produce a game where there is nothing visually on the screen except the game and then when the inning was over maybe you could pop in a thing or two and as I was taught by Dick Enberg and other producers and I passed this on to David Cohn, John Flaherty and Al Leiter uh, you have eight seconds between pitches to get your thought in and out and then it's time to look at the action and watch the next pitch and it has become, and I, I don't blame the announcers. It's not that I don't like the announcers, but one of the reasons I watch the game with the sound down is as I see so much that I wouldn't see if I was distracted by voices and also by all the graphics. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you that in a minute. But yeah, by, by having the sound down, uh, you know, I watched uh, Urquidy, the pitcher for the Astros. I saw him. He pitched a great game against the Twins. And now I see him last night, and I'm looking, and they got his facial expressions. I said, he looks puzzled. He looks like he's unsure of himself. And much different in Minnesota, he just got the ball. He did take his little walk around the mound, but he just had a confident look to me, which you, you can only tell by looking, by seeing the guy. And then I saw Andrew Heaney. I mean, he never, I don't think Andrew even dug a hole in front of the rubber to gain any traction with his spy. I'd never seen that before. And I texted one of my buddies down in Florida uh, that was a teammate of mine. I said, he's not going to get out of the first inning, which he didn't. I mean, he had sort of a unsure look in his eyes. And so I'm thinking with, with all the digital information that they throw on there, one thing they missed, which is so obvious, in that Arizona Phillies game, uh, 
the winning runs in, in the run that uh, tied it, I believe, leadoff walks contributed to that. We yeah. never see a statistic on leadoff walks, and it's about 30, it's, it's about a third of the time during the regular season. But when you get into the postseason, it seems like it's almost 50% of the time a leadoff walk will lead to a run. And that's what happened. And, you know, Kimbrell walked the leadoff hitter and the Diamondbacks ended up scoring. I think the the uh, lefty earlier on for, uh, uh, I think, for the Phillies walked the leadoff hitter and, and the Diamondbacks scored a run. So another run. So little things like that that I like to watch and pay attention to. Um, we just get blown away with all the other information. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm a, I'm a sound down watcher now, too. We have, uh, as part of education for the teams that we're working with with grassroots, we kind of have a group chat going during the games. Part of it's to teach the parents how to watch the game with their kids. And um, so there are there are iPads there, but it's for the reason of communicating or cell phones. And one of the conversations that blew up the, the group chat was last inning with with the Astros or the uh, Phillies Diamondbacks game where runners on second and third, no outs. And before the play happened, I said, what would our defense set be? And what would our, what would our base running communication be? And I mean, to a T the, the kids would say, Hey, it's, there's no out second and third. We would hold and make sure it went through. Um, we wouldn't do our down angle offense with no outs. And then uh, our defense set was we'd, we'd probably play in the line, the baseline, not so much because we were afraid to lose range playing in, but that little dinker that falls in between the outfield and the infield, we always got concerned with. So, um, but then they saw the Diamondbacks ground ball hit directly at Trey Turner. Guriel takes off, uh, gets gunned at the plate, and then runners now are on first and second with no outs. And he did something on his own, and nobody else got the, I guess, got the memo that they were in down angle offense. So, but the uh, Japanese. That's great stuff. I mean, that is really good to help educate people like that because I'm watching that game and. Even though the Diamondbacks won two to one, there were more uh, pathetic at bats in situations and base running. And I'm thinking, you know, when they get on base and they like to do all their dances and look at the dugout, I mean, maybe spend a little more time in going over, okay, here's the situation. What if the ball is hit here? What do I do? Uh, and I used to say when, when I was doing games on television, I said, you know, baseball is a very slow-paced game, but down on the field, things happen quickly. And if you don't anticipate and you don't tell yourself you're on third, okay, what if the ball is hit here? What am I going to do? If you don't think of that in advance, you're probably going to make the wrong decision every time. And there was, I think, Guriel, uh, was it? No, it wasn't Guriel. It was somebody else that maybe Marino that hit a ball off the wall. He should have been on third base. And he's looking at the ball to see if it's going out of the ballpark. And, uh, and little things like that that you mentioned and that we notice, uh, even though the score of the game went in the Diamondbacks' favor, if they had lost that game, they would have had to look back and say, man, we, we didn't execute some of the basic fundamentals of baseball that could have won that game for us. Well, hopefully, I'm, hopefully they do that anyway because, as you know, I've learned from you, you, you don't accept in – victory which you wouldn't accept in defeat so you you got to keep getting better and I, I promise you i wouldn't hit the playoffs until the end somehow i ventured into that so we'll we'll come we'll come back to it you had you had mentioned to me pre-show about the pitch com and uh about the there's there's some customized soundtracks going on there i don't know if it was that in any uh issue with heaney when he was uncomfortable on the mound i don't what? think so i just i just happened to it caught my attention when it said you know i read the athletic which is uh an online sports publication where a lot of the former writers that because of newspapers shut down, we have great writers like Kenny Rosenthal are on there. And this article, uh, I think it was by two writers uh, and I can't remember their names right now, but it's in the, it's on the athletic and it is about like custom, custom soundtracks. For example, JT Romuto with the Phillies. Uh, he's got a couple on there where the voice goes out to the pitcher fastball high and away. Uh, wipeout slider, or they have little code names for their pitches. And I was, I was kind of uh, thinking about in my latter years, you know, in his prime, Vita Blue had a just a blazing fastball. And so Monty Moore, the announcer for the Oakland A's, would say, here comes the Blue Blazer. 
right? And that was the Vita Blue fastball. So in my latter years, I used to kid my guys down in the bullpen when I was warming up. And obviously, I didn't throw that hard then. I said, here comes my blue blazer. That's what I always called my fastball. So now in this pitch comp, they have little little code names for their for their pitches that the catcher can communicate to the pitcher. And also the pitcher can uh, can make up, you know, can do a custom soundtrack about his pitches. And uh, I found that really interesting. I mean, I can't relate to it because we didn't have that in my era, but Obviously, it's it's been very helpful to uh, to pitchers, catchers, and to the game where uh, we don't have to worry about sign stealing as much anymore. Yeah, initially I was a little, you know, when that when that came out, just I get I get uh, weirded out by the over legislation, the influx of way too much technology because I think it makes us it makes it makes us lose our intuition, our feel sometimes. Yeah. But then I look to football, and it's been going on in football for a number of years where they've got the the play call, but again, it has to do with the crowd noise. I would have to believe more so. Yeah, than now, you know what? You know what's going to happen next? Somewhere along the line, some team—they're not going to be hammering on the garbage cans like the Astros were. Some team is going to find out a way to intercept pitch. Oh, absolutely! And they're going to where the pitcher thinks he's supposed to throw it high it away. Somebody's going to come in and say, "Low it in," right? And they're not going to know who it is. And I, I, I think about all, as you mentioned, the electronics, because what was so cool and the reason I fell in love with baseball is I could lay there in my bed on a Sunday afternoon and listen to countless games. I couldn't see what was going on, but I would hear the announcers say, ground ball in the hole, juice backhands it, Eddie Juice to the ace, hop, step, and a jump over to Ferris Fane. So in my mind... I visualized what that was doing on the field. And that's kind of the way I visualized Bobby Shantz's motion, which which helped me field my position. And I just think sometimes that that way of doing things is far better than the electronic way we're teaching kids. Yeah. As as human nature, we get lazy mentally. Yeah. Think, think about something like the GPS. And I thought of something my, my daughter did to my father, my father-in-law and I, he figured it out so I can tattletale on the air. But uh, she reprogrammed his GPS. He's 10 years old so that it would go to Toys R Us instead of going to the grocery store. So he's driving without thinking, taking a right. Boom, boom. All of a sudden, he's in the Toys R Us parking lot. So they go to Toys R Us. So, I mean, if a 10-year-old girl can do that, that's basically what the pitch com is. It's a, it's a GPS on how to pitch. I mean, I'm certain that not that we're giving any MLB team's ideas. We certainly don't want cheating to go on. But, uh, gosh, if a 10-year-old girl could figure it out, then – I'm pretty certain that you're right on that, that that's the next uh, step, unfortunately. We're talking about kids and youth baseball, it kind of it reminds me immediately uh, of, of the visit I made to Michigan, and I, I got a chance to address the Hope College baseball team, which is where I went for and played for a year before uh, before I went on to play professionally. And uh, uh, a couple of things. First of all, I really recognized how the physical ability – of young players today is just so far superior to uh, to when we were. I, I had coffee one morning with three of my classmates, all in the 85-year-old range, and we were talking about it when I was watching that team. I said, I cannot imagine our infielders doing what these guys did. I mean, just the, just the whole drill, and I'm sure you drill your guys the same way. <laughs> and then when I addressed them, I said, now – I understand you have a roster of 35 players. They just made the cuts there. Yeah. It's a lot. And you have 14 pitchers. And they said, yeah. I said, well, we had a 15-man roster, and we had two pitchers, my roommate and myself. <laughs> and so that's kind of how the times have changed. And I said, now, did you, did you guys play travel ball? And I would say about well over 50% of them did because the money the promoters make with travel ball encourages parents to send their kids there in hopes that they will get a scholarship, which you know better than I do. Uh, Hope College does not give scholarships. And then I said, uh, did you enjoy it? And most of them said yes. And I said, did you suffer any injuries? And about 10 hands went up. Well, they have this freshman kid, just was going to be their best pitcher, and pitching in a inner squad game last week uh, tore his elbow, and he's going to have the Tommy John surgery, and he's going to be out for a year and a half. 
kid's devastated. You know, I have a nice little chat with him. I said, hey, you know, you're a young man. You're going to come back. It's going to be successful. But those kinds of things are because of overuse and overplaying in travel ball that somehow uh, we have to overcome. No, you're, you're right on the money. These It's overuse. And as we've talked, the travel ball situation, and, and I'd be curious to get some insight on this from new college kids as well. It's creating these two inning pitchers that we talk about all the time where it's, there's, there's no longer this motivation to create the, the, whether it's a high school starter, college starter, or, or pro starter, these kids are all conditioned to, it's, it's the cult of max velocity and they're conditioned to blow it out for two innings and maybe have to come back tomorrow and do another two. And I, I fear that there's going to be a market correction on starting pitching in major league baseball. Uh, if we're not there already, because at no point in time are these kids being developed to be starters. Well, you know, I, I believe I may have mentioned on a previous show when I met uh, and, and the commissioner addressed that to us at the Hall of Fame uh, meeting that we had with the other members. And that the one, you know, we talked about the positive things in baseball and the and the pitch clock and uh, attendance is up, even though on a lot of markets is down. Ratings are up during the season. I don't know if they'll be up during the postseason because there's so many games and at so many different times. But he said the one thing we're really missing is the attraction of the starting pitcher matchup. Yeah. So when I was in New York uh, meeting with the commissioner on another subject, uh, Morgan Sword, who is the head of baseball ops, asked if I'd spend some time with he and his staff. And they were picking my brain about, you know, how I trained in my minor league years to allow me to pitch like 245 innings at age 19. Makes it sound like we were supermen, which we were were not as super as today's pitchers, but uh, just the whole training regimen. And, uh, and somehow, instead of dumbing down pitchers, where uh, uh, the example of the Pirates, when they, when they drafted uh, Paul uh, Skeens, I believe his name oh, was. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And, uh, LSU. And so, yeah. And so he, uh, he pitched about seven innings. He pitched two innings at three different classifications. And they said, we've seen all we need to see. We're going to send them to our developmental program. I mean, how in the world do you expect a young man to develop into a durable, consistent major league pitcher by pitching six innings? You you have to go down to the minors and get knocked around a few times and learn how to rebound from that and learn what it's like to pitch every, well, now five days, every five days, what your routine is between starts, not only on the field, but off the field. And we're not giving kids a chance to do that. Uh, because of the short-sightedness of the people that have never pitched that are making these decisions. Yeah, and I, I don't want to go conspiracy theory on it, but I guess I'm going to a little bit. I think it's almost intentional to where owners are seeing the exorbitant amount of money they're paying to starting pitchers. I mean, you see, you know, we had some starters paid $45 million a year not to pitch this year, and that there's an, an intentionality to it to reduce the number of, of innings that starting pitchers pitch, so they don't have to pay them as much anymore. Uh, this, you know, four and a third is a lot less money than, you know, a Max Scherzer that's a bulldog going to go seven. And if they, I, I would be careful with, especially parents listening, not that everybody's going to be a pro, but those that are going to be pros, I would fight that because, you know, if you if you don't believe me, take a look at the running back in the NFL. At one point, the running backs were the prime money makers, and then all of a sudden you split carries in the backfield, they reduced the emphasis of the running back with the styles, and now running backs are seen as a dime a dozen. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I don't know that, you know, I've always, uh, I used to kid uh, uh, some of the executives when they start talking about the specialization of the game. I said, you know, I could, I could be the starter, and then I could get you a hold, and then I could get you a save all for the same price because I would pitch all nine innings. I'm not just saying myself, I'm saying pitchers of that era. You know, you started a game, and now if you went six, you came out, guy comes in for two, he gets a hold, you're paying him a pretty good chunk. And then you got your closer coming in, you're paying him a lot. Well, we could give you three for one, for one price. And I, I think maybe that's what, uh, that's what baseball will try to get back to, where the starter, starting pitchers really 
as much money as they get paid right now, they never have to get the last six outs of a game. And and uh, that's why it's so difficult. Uh, with all due respect to they are the greatest in this era, but you can't compare them to Sandy Koufax or Bob Gibson because being a starting pitcher and being a closer in, in all different kinds of roles as a pitcher, I know that the most difficult outs to get are the last six and particularly the last three. That's why you have a limited number of pitchers who can pitch the ninth inning uh, because they can walk that tight rope without a safety net. And you have some really good pitchers that can pitch the eighth, but they can't pitch the ninth. Yeah. And, and you know, it takes, uh, it takes coaches and scouts and everybody to figure that out. But uh, that's what the starting pitchers don't have to do today. I mean, I watched the two starters last night for Arizona and, and then Ranger Suarez, and man, they did a great job, five and a fraction innings. And they're conditioned. That's what their job is. Uh, so you may be right that owners will say, well, why are we paying these guys? They're, we're paying them $40 million. Then we got to pay the guy that holds the lead, and then we got to pay the guy that closes the game. So it's a lot of money to win a game these days. That's right. No, I, I hear and, and with all the injuries, almost a billion dollars spent on injured players this year. Yeah. Um, something's got to give. I want to ask you a question back to Hope College. I, um, the number you mentioned intrigued me. And for our audience, Hope College, Division Three program in Michigan, beautiful, beautiful campus, uh, very good academic school as well. And here you are talking to a Hall of Famer that went to Division Three route. So recruits out there, pay attention. There's, there's a lot of different ways you can get to from point A to point B. But uh, you mentioned fifty percent, only fifty percent played travel baseball. To me, that's a low number. I would have, I would have guessed it would have been much higher. You know, these are the ones that that raised their hands. I didn't stop and take an actual count, but I thought most of them did. And then the coach, uh, I, I had several lunch and meetings with Coach Stu Fritz, and, and he said, "Yeah, the travel ball because they feel, uh, and you know this better than I do, they feel that by playing travel ball, they're going to increase their chances of getting a scholarship." Of course, that would not. Uh, do them any good at Hope College because they give no scholarships there. Uh, you know, so they're there because they want to get an education, and, uh, and so travel ball wouldn't be that much of an influence. One thing that I was disappointed to hear: my nephew is a former athletic director. He lives in Sioux Falls now, and his son is a, a grandson is an excellent little uh, football player, and uh, it's in a city that has a private school and a public school, and the public school has maybe the better players. But the coach of the private school went to the parents of a couple players of the public school and said, look, if your sons transfer to my school, we will give them a much better opportunity to get D1 scholarship. And so that's the kind of stuff that's going on by parents behind the scenes, even at the high school level. And you said it even goes below that. It does. It's it's it starts at such a young age right now, and I never wanted to coach my children. Once I stepped away from from college coaching, I wanted to watch and work with them at home, and just enjoy. And the the cesspool that is is youth the grassroots sports right now. What you're saying here's the part that that makes me sad. I wasn't shocked when you told me that. Um, I was I just shook my head. Yeah, that's that sounds like Friday. Um, that's what's going on out there. We have. You know, we have a, a little, we have programs we run and I can't count the number of coaches that come in and hang in and around our practices, trying to get an ear of the parents or the kids to the point where I just shut practices down outsiders, outside of family and uh, of the kids to come in because I just don't think kids, you know, emotionally should be dealing with that right now. When they're young, youth sports, high school sports should not be about becoming a pro because very few make it. There, there's so many other things that kids have to develop. And that solicitation of kids is just, to me, it's criminal. Yeah, I, I mentioned that to the kids uh, at Hope College. I said, now, and, and I know John Stuper, my, my friend and teammate that coached at Yale for 27 years, uh, was honest with his, you know, with his incoming freshman that, look, the percentages say, uh, here's the percentage of you playing in the major leagues. And, and I know myself, it, you know, it's a gift. I mean, I played with players that had, had a lot more ability, but it's a gift that it, it has a lot to do with how much you really love it and do you really want to do it for yourself uh, that goes into it. 
But, uh, you know, I think that, yeah, right. I was honest with the kids. I said, when you look at the percentages, uh, it, there's not a, a very high percentage that you're going to play Major League Baseball. That being said, if you want to, like I did when I was sitting there, follow your dreams as far as you can, as hard as you can. But while you're in college or high school or whatever it is, enjoy it and play for the enjoyment of it. Learn to be a good teammate. Uh, you know, I talked about accountability, uh, learn to take ownership of your own position. You know, don't worry, well, the coach told me to do this or the shortstop made a bobble or something. No, I said, I learned early on when we, when I lost a game, it was my fault. And we won a game it's because I had a lot of help. And so you want to be, you want to own your own position, be accountable, be dependable as a teammate, show up on time. Uh, be a great, uh, you know, example to your teammates of what a, what a solid citizen type teammate means. And, uh, those are the things you want to develop in high school or college, even if you never get to professional baseball, because then if you do, if you do and get to professional baseball, you're already going to have molded that kind of a character where you will be a good teammate. Yeah. I think it's a bad habit that, uh, and it's become commonplace now with these kids. Yeah, and I'm not kidding when I said it starts at a young age. I've gone through it personally with my boys. They're playing for a team, and you know, uh, they somebody watching them play in a game at the age of eight or nine wouldn't know who they were, wouldn't know who I was as a parent, but start trying to find around the crowd who this who's this kid's parents to come talk to to try to get them to jump to my team, and. Yeah. Uh, it's it's crazy. My my message to my my and my boys know better, but my girls too. But uh, my message to kids out there is, if your coach is treating you the right way and helping you grow, helping you enjoy the game, the grass isn't always greener. Nobody has any guarantees. Any coach that's telling you, I got a pipeline of scholarships. There's only 11.7 scholarships in Division One college baseball. There's guys that are getting drafted in the top five rounds that aren't even getting a, a half scholarship at schools. Um, but it's silly. It's, it makes me sad to hear that. You know, I, I think I've told you this story before, but uh, years ago when I was doing the College World Series in Omaha, so I was there for like 10 days and I saw all these teams come through and it was always right around draft time. I believe they've altered that a little bit now because it, it used to ruin young young kids that they were actually playing for an NCAA championship, and yet it was during draft week yeah. where they had to impress the scouts. So staying in the same hotel with the LSU team, and it was pretty obviously that Ben McDonald was going to be the number one pick, which he was. And then I saw this young man seated in front of his whole, in a yoga sitting position in front of his door, and I could tell he was weeping. And I said, uh, what's the problem, young man? And uh, he introduced himself, and it was Curtis Laskanik. And he went on to pitch in the big leagues. Yeah. He, he, he had almost as good a numbers as Ben McDonald did. And he said, well, they told me they thought I would be maybe a high number two round or, or number three. And I didn't go to the 11th round. I said, you know what? When you get out and play, you sign a contract, you go out and play. And you're looking down at that hitter. He has no clue whether you were a number one pick or a number 50 pick. If you produce and prove you can get hitters out, you're going to pitch in the big leagues. It doesn't matter where you're drafted. And today for these kids that are getting exposed much younger, with I'm sure you have experience with, where, where coaches now can get a CD of a player and get an idea of what kind of a player he is. So if you got talent, you're somebody's going to find you. Without question. There's, there's no... There's very few, I should say, hidden gems anymore. Although we did, we did have one with Evan Carter in the the playoffs with Texas. Yeah, the left fielder, not on any Baseball America top five hundred, wasn't at any perfect game, didn't appear in anybody's reports. But he got he got found the old fashioned way. He was a local, uh, former minor league player who happened to be coaching him. Made a phone call to a scout at a higher level. I guess he must have been an old bird dog. That's a term that people don't know anymore. And uh, just made the recommendation. They came down and watched him, and here he is playing in the World Series. Now, batted third the other night, and he's yeah. uh, 20 years old. He's got a bright future, but he didn't go the traditional route. He didn't get. He didn't transfer high schools. He didn't, you know, even play travel baseball. Um, he played multiple sports, and uh, 
you know, seems like a fine young man and he turned out all right. Uh, but it's not, it's not the common, you know, it's a monkey see monkey do world. It's all copycat. And, you yeah. know, I, I just, uh, I, not to sound old Jim, but I missed the good old days when it was just, you go out and you play and if you're good, they grab you. If you're not, they tell you how to get better and you just go get better. Yeah. You know, my teammate, Larry Boa, who went on to manage in the big leagues and shortstop for the Phillies for several years. I think he got cut from his high school team, you know, two or three years. His nickname was Pee Wee. He was like the littlest kid, but he, he just, he had such a fiery determination uh, to get better and play that eventually he carved out a very good major league career after yeah. cut from his high school team several times. Ironically, we had him on the show a couple of days ago. He uh, was given a great synopsis of the playoffs and uh, what a wonderful perspective. I think that's a gem for the Phillies to still have as a, a confidant over there. And even, uh, you know, even with all his years in there, he seems to still be adapting to the game, but he is, uh, when you say fiery up, yep, I'll second that. Um, yeah. you could tell by even his common voice that he's, there's a, there's a, there's a fight in that guy and that's why he made it. We used to get some ver- pretty good verbal skirmishes in the clubhouse, you know, with, with stuff that you could do in, uh, uh, in the clubhouse amongst yourselves. But, uh, you know, we used to look at Larry and said, "Man, if you were if you weren't five eight, somebody'd have punched you by now." You know, we get annoyed with them, but yet when we sit as pitchers, who would you rather have the ball hit to for the last out of the game? It was Larry Boa. Yeah, yep. absolutely. That's the guy you want on your side. Good hand, an accurate arm. It's that. Yeah, it's that. Uh, it's that. I don't want to say that simple, but you know, kind of going back to the Gold Gloves. That's what you want. You want guys that can make the routine place and guys that aren't going to make their teammates have to reach. And it sounds oversimplistic, but if you watch today's game, it's, 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 not, uh, it's not always that easy. You know, when you go back to the gold gloves, I was thinking about the flip side of that with the analytics. And I, with all respect to Keith Hernandez, Don Mattingly, both great, you know, it's hard to split those two. And a lot of people would be surprised when I said that Kent Herbeck for six years when I was covering Twins games was as good a first baseman as I've ever seen. Well, Herbie, you know, he didn't have that athletic body. He played in Minnesota where you didn't get as much exposure. But today with with the metrics, it it may have shown what a great first baseman he really was, and he would have got more consideration for a gold glove because uh, Herbie was as good of a, as I've seen for six years. Yeah. And you have a keen eye for talent. What? What? And I was going to ask you that question too. Who were some guys that you thought may have gotten overlooked in the past? No, again, no insult to guys that have won, but uh, well, a guy I along on that same team was Greg Gagne at shortstop. Sure. We kind of knew Cal Ripken would get the gold glove, you know, and Cal was in, in as he was at advanced age. He could play hitters well, but but he didn't have that kind of range. But Gags in that year when the Twins won in 1991, and I mean, I, I covered 100 of those games, and I said it all year, here's, here's a guy that's a gold glove shortstop, but chances are he's not going to get that kind of recognition. Yeah. What, and, you know, you talked her back, talked talk, uh, Gagne. What, in your mind, as that, that evaluated, what made him, in your, in your mind, gold glovers? Well, in Herbie's case, he, he, he loved hockey, and he played first base like a hockey goalie. Nothing got by him, and one simple little thing, he could go back into foul territory with his back to the infield and catch balls over his shoulder and get you know a, a great jump on the ball. Uh, I don't think he ever dropped a throw like if Gaetti made a, a one-hop throw at first base, Herbie scooped it up all the time. So those are the things that stood out. And for a right-handed first baseman, the most difficult play is making that 3-6-3 double play where you, you have to sort of make a reverse pivot, you know, a half pivot to the unnatural side. And he was uncanny in his ability to do that and make an accurate throw. And Gagne was one that he had a, he had a strong arm. He just got a good jump on the ball. Now, granted, he played on AstroTurf, so he's getting good hops, but uh, you can just tell with his range and his arm and his consistency. I don't know how many errors he made that year. I don't think very many. But, uh, you know, you, I can just tell from seeing players on a daily basis uh, how much he stood out from the others. Yeah. What about in your time? I know it's your your gold glove span over 16 years. Who who in, in your time of playing do you look at? And, and even, I guess even, yeah, I mean, you, you're 
quarter of a century playing playing the game at the major league level. Who are some guys you thought maybe got overlooked for that award that, you know, were in your mind were gold glovers? Yeah, I, don't, I don't know how many times uh, Greg Nettles won the gold glove. He won it a couple. Uh, but, you know, he was a phenomenal third baseman. And of course, Mike Schmidt. Schmitty played on AstroTurf, but Schmitty's one of the great all-around athletes. No matter, he even played shortstop, I think, when he came up. Uh, you know, and it's—I'd uh, have to take some time and think back to, you know, who I who I thought got overlooked. Because oftentimes it might be a player that isn't an everyday player. Maybe he's a platoon player. Like we had a center fielder named Joe Nasik, and Jimmy Hall was our primary center fielder. Uh, and, and most of the time we saw right-hand pitching, so he got most of the at-bats. But Joel was as good a center fielder as there was. He just didn't get a, as much playing time as the others. Yeah. Well, they, uh, I know early on in the show we talked a little bit of playoffs, and the audience got to hear me complain about base running, which is like a daily occurrence for me. So the, the groups I work with will be happy I got it out of my system early in the day. But um, what are you seeing in the playoffs now? You got, I think, four great managers. I I put something up on Facebook the other day. Uh, the uh, manager for the Diamondbacks and the manager for the Phillies—they were actually teammates in Lakeland way back when. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think in the in the playoffs, there's some of that little psychological stuff. I thought when uh, when Tory took out his starting pitcher. You know, that might uh, come back, you know, that might backfire, but uh, they ended up winning the game. But I think uh, the, the tendency you see today, and, and I don't want to say overmanaging from a critical standpoint, because that's the way the game is played. Years ago, if they made those kind of moves, everybody said, oh, he's overmanaging. I mean, to me, the catcher and the starting pitcher are in the flow of the game. And unless you can bring in a pitcher that is far superior to the one that's out there, uh, you, you wouldn't do it. But that's changed so much because you have these specialists. I think the one mistake maybe that uh, managers make who were not pitchers and don't have an extremely maybe strong pitching coach that did have experience. Now the Diamondbacks have that and Brent Strom, but you know, I saw it ruin Rick Ankeel when Tony La Russa and, and Dave Duncan with the Cardinals, they started Rick when he was like 20 years old yeah. in the playoff game. He threw out seven. And, and I got to know Rick later and talk about it. I mean, it it not only ruined his career as a pitcher, it, it ruined a part of his life. I mean, he went through some really difficult struggles. And sometimes they're putting these young pitchers, which they did last night, in pressure situations that being a former pitcher – the the managers who haven't pitched have no idea what pressure is on because the whole focus is on on that pitcher. He dictates what's going to happen in the game when he throws that ball, and the demons start sneaking in. Am I ever going to throw a strike? You know, and and uh, you know, you all of a sudden, like Johnny Sane used to say to me, the toughest time to throw a strike is when you know you have to throw a strike. And if you can relax and just learn that, hey, it's just another pitch, but you can't expect a 20-year-old with limited big league experience uh, to think that way. And, and a lot of these kids today are getting put in those situations. We saw it with the, with the Rangers, I think, last night and with the Diamondbacks. Yeah. Well, share our, some of our audience may not know about Rick Ankiel, and others may remember him trying to make a comeback as an outfielder. Share a little bit about his early story and some of those struggles with, without revealing, you know, you don't have to reveal anything intimate. That uh, you spoke well, with. You know, I remember when he came out of high school at Port St. Lucie, and a, an attorney friend of mine uh, who, you know, knew the family called and said, Would you, who's there an agent you'd recommend? And, and even though I knew a lot of good agents, I said, You know, I, I, I hesitate to do that because if it doesn't turn out, I don't really want to be on the hook for that. I mean, one agent might be good for this guy, but not for that guy. But anyway, Rick was attracting a lot of attention. And, uh, and when he get, did get drafted, high expectations. The Cardinals uh, started him in that playoff game uh, when he, uh, you know, he couldn't find the plate. And it was pretty obvious from watching the game that, uh, you know, he was just not mentally equipped to do that. And it uh, took him down some bad roads off the field. And then he came back as an outfielder. I, I think he hit over 20 home runs one year. Yeah. I mean, he was like Otani before Otani. But he didn't, he didn't play and pitch. He did them in separate years. 
And then uh, when his career ended, he's now uh, he's now speaking to groups. You know, he's kind of a I think these days they call him a life skills coach. Okay, yeah. Where he'll uh, he'll work with young players that are that are going through that, that are feeling the pressure and how do they deal with it. And he, he had, uh, I guess, what would they call it, the yips, where he, he couldn't even locate. No. No, he couldn't. Uh, I mean, I, I think about that sometimes. I'd, I'd have games where I remember uh, we had a big lead. And in those days, you got paid on your wins. It didn't matter if you went five innings, did a good job. If you didn't get the win, well, you didn't, you know, you didn't get credit. Wins was what you negotiated your contract on. So I'd have a big lead, and then one day one of my teammates, just kiddingly, you know, on the way out, said, "Well, we th- you think we got enough for you?" You know, kiddingly. Well, now I walk the first guy in the fifth, and then I go two and zero, oh, and then you stand there and you say, "Well, what if I never throw another strike? I got to throw a strike," you know, <laughs> and you start battling those demons within yourself that uh, uh, I don't think a lot of people realize that. I mean, even Dennis Eckersley told me he said. Every time he got called in from the bullpen, he was scared to death. But sometimes guys perform better out of that fear. Sometimes it makes them cave in, and sometimes it makes them perform in spite of it. So those are the little things I think that that teams miss by not having particularly a pitcher that has had a lot of uh, pitching experience that could be be helpful. I think I told you about my message to Adam Wainwright for his 200th. I don't think so. Well, you know, uh, he lives in Brunswick, and I'm I'm living there this winter, and I've met him, and I correspond with him, and I think I was texting him about a golf game. And uh, so he still hadn't reached his 200th win. So in closing with my text about golf, I said, Wayno, uh, hold it like an egg and don't try too hard. So the next day, next day he pitches seven shutout innings, gets his 200th win. And he texted me back. He said, timely text. It's just what I needed. <laughs> so, you know, the, the hole it like an egg was always Johnny saying, you know, don't squeeze it, you know, like you're going to break it. You just hold it nice and soft and, and light pressure on the fingers. And don't try too hard. I mean, 10 years from now, nobody will know how that game came out. Just go ahead and do your best. So it's like that easier to say than to do, but that's the sort of sports psychology that we played on ourselves before sports psychologists were in vogue. And sometimes little messages like that can resonate with a pitcher. That's kind of what kids today don't understand that, you know, there were times when you're the best pitching coach in the world is yourself. Uh, You're the one in your head all day long. And then the best psychologist is yourself too. I, I, I like that message. You hadn't told me that one before. I'm glad you shared yeah, I think, well, I think it's because we did learn to be our own. Uh, we we did learn to be our own psychologists before psychology. You had to, you had to trick your mind into being able to relax and be comfortable when the situation was uncomfortable, and that's the key to dealing with pressure. Yeah, I try to explain that to my kids too. That I probably lied to myself more often as a competitive athlete just to do just that to put yourself in a in a state that definitely wasn't real, but whatever it did, it relaxed you. And I like the egg thing because don't squeeze too tight. You were talking physically, but you're also talking mentally too. Don't, yeah. don't press them. Just right. relax and do what you've done your whole life. Yeah. Simple. Exactly. Simple. Well, what, uh, any, anything that you're seeing in these games here, these playoff games that our, our audience should pay special attention to as we, you know, we got a two, two, I think it's what two, two with the Texas and uh, the Rangers and the Astros. Nobody wants to win at home. And yeah. Then, Phillies in Arizona. What's that? Two one now. Yeah, I well, I, I just think it comes down to the usually it comes down to the starting pitcher. I mean, last night the the Astros got by with a with a Urquidy not having a solid start, but then the Rangers didn't have one of their their top guys. They got Avaldi against uh, Verlander tonight. That should be uh, that should be interesting. The uh, I thought the Twins in the uh, in the division series they had a. They had a shot. They got some base runners off uh, off Justin early on, but they the situational at bats in these uh, series are just not what I expected, you know. And and what works during the season, even the Rangers who are good hitters, you know, they chased a lot of pitches out of the strike zone. Uh, you know, I always said if you look at if you look at the scoreboard 
and uh, and the game today. All you have to do is look at the scoreboard and pitching cases of account. That'll tell you what to do. The score and the scoreboard. So uh, last night, I would say there were situations where Urquidy walked. He got to three balls and he had walked a man and he got to a three-one count. So there, as a hitter, you want to say, well, he's got to throw it in my little bitty box, that area where. This is where I like it, and if it's not there, I'm going to take it. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. There was a pitch close, and it was out of the strike zone. They swung at it, fouled it off. Eventually, they made an out. So the discipline and the situational at-bats have got to be better for these teams in these low-scoring games. Where where have we lost that? Because that's – it's prevalent. It's not just in that situation or in that that inning or even in that game. It's, It's across the board. Well, we've lost it with stat cast and launch angle and exit velocity. Because uh, if you watch this Josh Jung, now he's been a very productive hitter for the Rangers, but he yeah. is the epitome of swing hard in case you hit it. You know, And then you have <laughs> Kyle Schwarber, who would be, if there's a player today that's a modern Babe Ruth without hitting 300, it's, it's Kyle. You know, He's just up there, and he's got that awesome power, and he's apt to lead off a game with a home run where – Years ago, you wanted a guy that could get on base. And I think it's the uh, the emphasis on velocity for a pitcher, power for a hitter, launch angle, exit velocity, launch it in the air, hit it hard. And that's what's taken away from the situational uh, hitting. I think um, when I spoke at Brooks Robinson's uh, service uh, coming up on two weeks ago now, at his uh, memorial service, Camden Yards, and I got a little background from Jim Palmer. And Jim Palmer said that our, our description of Brooksy was always tie game, bottom of the ninth, man on second. Brooks Robinson will get you a single to center field better than anybody in the game. <laughs> and that's what we don't see today. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I think it's it's something that our audience members, the kids especially, pay attention to. We had on uh, Win Reality earlier today, and they're doing the virtual reality hitting with Dan O'Dowd. He, he set up that system. And I was proud to hear because I asked them that question. I said, is this 99% mechanics where they're going in? Um, are we talking situational hitting? Uh, are we talking real at-bats? And I j- kind of joked. I said, do we have a buzzer on those kids? So if they do dip their bat head and try to launch angle, you guys can shock them a little bit to get that out of their system. And they laughed. I guess they do have something in order, but uh, not quite probably as harsh as my uh, my buzzer suggestion. Right, Yeah. <laughs> So. Yeah, there's there's a lot of technology out there now that can, even in golf, you know, where you you have the perfect swing and you go through it, and they have a, a device where it'll beep if you're not in the right position. So uh, all that stuff is good, but you still have to find your own natural way, and uh, and as you referred to earlier, eventually learn to be your own coach. Yeah, you got to be you got to have your own GPS system inside. Yeah, especially as a pitcher, balance, rhythm, timing. Same thing as a hitter. It's no different. Same thing as a base runner. You're trying to get the same thing. So, well, how do you want to leave our audience? Say, I've kept you for almost an hour today, and I appreciate. Well, I enjoy the game. I hope we have good. I hope that you know what I always hope for in these games is that they're won and not lost on a you know the the Bill Buckner era, which Billy Buck should never have been out there in the first place. But you just hate to see uh, all the work these teams have put into getting there, and, and you don't want to see it. Uh, you know, heard of somebody making a bonehead play. So I hope they pay attention to their base running and their situational hitting. And uh, those are the things that uh, could end up uh, winning games for you. Yeah. And you had, uh, I forgot to mention this, you had uh, alerted us last show about the San Francisco Giants interviewing. And, oh, my God, the next day or two days later, it came out. They had interviewed uh, the, the female assistant yeah, coach. Lisa, Lisa Hacken, I think it is. And, and she's like four months pregnant. That might keep her from getting a job. But I thought, what a great combo with Elisa. And now my friend Kim Ng, who was with the Marlins. I knew Kim real well when she was with the Yankees and a brilliant baseball mind. And uh, she made a lot of moves that got the Marlins to the playoff. But when they decided that, that they were going to bring in somebody over her and had a baseball op, she opted out of her option. So there's some organization, if they want to make baseball history, they hire Kim and Elisa. And, uh, you know, women we know have great leadership skills. Maybe they can actually hire a coaching staff that has some coaches on it with with major league experience that can be helpful with uh, how to play the game as well as how to train to be stronger and more powerful. 
Yeah, experience matters. I think that's Larry Boa left us with that the other day because you guys remember experience matters. And I just, I, I'm sorry I keep prolonging, but uh, Kim interests me. She had a, a great run with the Marlins. I thought, I mean, they're in the playoffs this year. She did a phenomenal job of building that roster. Um, she's someone who put the time in, though. People don't realize that. You know, she, she got a lot of fanfare because, you know, first woman in that particular role. And I think that took away from the, uh, the time, the grind, the, the, the amount of, uh, even the people she was with. I mean, she was under stick Michael. Um, yeah. Could you talk to her a little bit? So our audience understand just, just how much time. this. I knew, I knew Kim when she was with the Yankees, but then it goes back to a small world is that, uh, you know, where my grandkids live now in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and they went to school. Well, Kim was an outstanding softball player at Ridgewood high school. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, before she got in. And I don't know if she went to college to play softball, but I I first crossed paths with her when she was an assistant with the Yankees. And so I had a chance to, you know, to really talk to talk baseball with her. So, yeah, it isn't that she just uh, that she just popped onto the scene. Uh, you know, she's put some work in with other organizations been with the Dodgers before. So she's got some street cred. Oh, that, that, she'll land on her feet. Somebody smart's going to going to hire her and. Uh... So, uh, and I'll bring you back to the playoffs one last time, and then we'll get you out of here. What, what are you What are you looking for in either one of these series? Any Any player in particular, um, young player, veteran player, to kind of step up? Someone you're you're uh, you've got a keen eye on? Well, I, I think the obvious choice is you think if Verlander's Verlander, and they win that game tonight, that pretty much puts uh, Houston in the driver's seat. I think uh, I think Texas knows they had to win one of these last two games to really have. Uh, the upper hand, and then I think with the with the Diamondbacks, I don't know who they're they're pitching tonight. Uh, I don't th- are they coming back with Zach Gallon tonight? That's the word, but I'm not sure yet. I haven't seen the post yet. Uh, if, they can, if they can get it to two two, you know, I, I hate reading all these percentages, and, and we're just getting inundated with it. Like uh, teams that have won the first two games, eighty five percent, blah blah blah. Well, you know, we won the first two games, except the other team had Sandy Koufax. Well, that kind of alters what the percentages say. So, you know, game, you know, when, when when we had this great pennant race in 67, every game in September with four teams with a chance to win, every game was a big game. And we'd come in and say, man, big game today. And we'd win the game. And then afterwards we'd say, well, that was over. I guess tomorrow's not a big game, is it? No, it is. The next big game you play like the next big pitch you make is the next one. And whoever can, whoever can handle that will, will come out ahead. But I certainly think the, the Astros put themselves in very good shape now, which is not a surprise. I mean, I, I was surprised Atlanta didn't get there. But to me, uh, the Astros are certainly the best team. Yeah. Houston and Philly seem to be there at the end yeah. days. And I think it's a great, great way to end it, uh, reminding those kids, too. The next pitch is the most important pitch. Next play is the most important play. It's a phrase we hear all the time, play the next play, easier said than done. Um, but, uh, Jim, thanks so much. Uh, glad to have you again this week. Great call on the Giants. Great insight into that. You were the first one out there um, that had that. Everyone else took credit for it two days later when they were breaking stories, but I reminded them on social media. The whole- yeah, I, had good, I had good insight from friends that, uh, that knew people in the Giants organization. Yeah, that's all right. That's uh, that's how they get their stories too, supposedly. But yeah. Just want to thank our audience again, uh, 53,000 plus subscribers and growing. Make sure you give this show, Cots Corner, five stars. Write some great comments because much like Major League Baseball, we battle the analytics of the podcast world. Pay attention to the playoffs tonight. Uh, also, take a look at those Gold Glove Award winners. If anybody has insight as to how they select them nowadays, we'd love to hear how Nolan Arenado just all of a sudden became a bad fielder. So. Um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to look into that, Dave. When uh, I go to the Gold Glove Awards and present the awards to the pitchers and make some other presentations, so between uh, uh, one of the Saber men that's always there, uh, Vince Vince is there, and uh, a couple others uh, from Rawlings, I'm going to find out exactly what's going into that. Tell them to come on. We'll do a special show on the Gold Glove and uh, yeah. let them explain it. Okay, a good idea. Yep, without a doubt. Um, but thanks so much again. Episode 322 in the books here with Cots Corner. Everybody enjoy their weekend. Jim, great job. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you. You too, Dave.